1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, if you knew that the end of all things was tomorrow, what would you do? Martin Luther, the reformer, German reformer of the 16th century, was asked that question. He said, if I knew that the end of all things was tomorrow, I'd go and plant an apple tree today. Now, why would he say that? But I mean, what would prompt him to think that way? Well, I think First Peter kind of answers that question. By the way, I haven't been posting the signs on 540 that Jesus is coming soon. If you drive between here and 540, well, one guy is really particularly excited about it. He's coming very soon. But uh, we will be talking about that, but I didn't do that. We, you've been with me in this letter in 1 Peter. <clears throat> and in 1 Peter, he's trying to encourage us to live faithfully in the midst of persecution. You know to whom he's writing. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's writing to a people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Th these, are, these are provinces in what is now Turkey. And they're under great social and political pressure. And so he's writing to them that they might walk faithfully in the midst of persecution. That they might thrive. In fact, that they might live so well that even though those around them would speak evil of them, that on the day of visitation, on that last day, they would glorify God for them. That's how the church is to be. That's how he's instructing us to live. And this day of visitation that was referenced in chapter 2, verse 12, is picked back up again, if you remember, in chapter 3, 22, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that angels and authorities are all subjected to him now. Or you heard last week in chapter 4, 5, that Jesus is ready now to judge the living and the dead. And so here Peter is picking up this idea that the end of all things is at hand. Here's how you live. I mean, this is beautiful instruction for us. How do we live in these days? It may involve planting an apple tree, but, but there's more going on that Peter wants us to understand. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to understand that phrase in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean for us? And then I want to look at how then do we live in light of that. If it's true, then how should that impact what we're going to do on Sunday afternoon and on Monday and on Tuesday? So we want to ask the question first, what does it mean, what does Peter mean that the end of all things is at hand. It's kind of confusing, really. I mean, people have often thought that Peter made a mistake. He, he was wrong. He made a prediction. And you know, 2,000 years later, guess what? He must have just missed it. Well, I would say not so fast. I don't think Peter was making a prediction. I don't think he was wrong. Why? Because we know in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus had said 
to Peter that only the Father knows the hours and the time. Only the Father knows. So Peter knew from Jesus' own word that he wouldn't know. But not only that, in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, Jesus speaks to Peter and says that you'll die before I return. In John 21, we read Jesus speaking to Peter, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Now, this is John's editorial comment in verse 19. He says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. So Peter knew it. Peter knew he would die. So then what does he mean? If the end of all things is at hand, well, I think what he's saying is this. I'd submit to you that he's saying everything that needed to be done by God to bring about the full redemption of the world has been done. But one thing, and that is his return. I mean, think about it. God created all things, gave life to all things. Men and women fell into sin. They fell into sin. And, and, then, and then he raises up Noah, a preacher of righteousness. They don't respond. God brings a foretaste of judgment in the flood. And then the people populate by God's grace. They create the Tower of Babel, again, reaching out for God. God brings judgment by confusing languages. But then he calls Abraham, not a Jew, but the father of Jews, to bring forth a nation that's to declare the glory of God. But they didn't. And so they got moved. They, they were in, in slavery in Egypt. But God just demonstrates his deliverance and his mercy by drawing them out. But then they failed to continue, they continue to fail to walk in godliness. So they get sent into exile in Babylon. But God, again, shows his delivering power by drawing them back, regathering Israel. And then one out of Israel came, Jesus, the Messiah, the one that was always promised. And he came and lived, and he died. He died for our sins, bearing our guilt, bearing our shame, dying for us. And then God raised him from the dead, justifying us, declaring us innocent, seated him at the right hand of God. And then he, we know that he is there because the Spirit came. Peter saw that in Acts chapter 2. But the Spirit came upon all, Jew and Gentile. Peter saw that in Acts chapter 10. So everything's happened that needs to happen for the redemption of the world, except one last act in God's program to save, which is the return of Christ. All things have happened. Everything. The things at hand are complete except the return. This isn't the cessation of life. What we're waiting for is the consummation of life where he will bring about his kingdom in fullness and he'll establish a new heavens and a new earth. This is what I think he means when he says the end of all things is at hand. It's all done. His return may not be immediate, but it's imminent. It's right there. We're right there on the edge. There's nothing else that has to occur. There's no new revelation that has to come. It's done. We want to be mindful of the time in which we live. You know, the Greeks and the Babylonians, they kind of saw, and the Hindus of today, they kind of saw life as a cycle, like a spin cycle on a washing machine. You just keep recycling in life. You know, if you go to the other end of the scale, it doesn't work that way. They look at life as kind of a, a battery-powered clock. It, and kind of just winds down, begins maybe skipping towards the end, and just kind of runs out, kind of an undramatic close. The Bible is very clear. Life is not cyclical, it's linear. That there is a consummation of life. There's not a cessation of life. 
Now, we Christians, if you're a Christian here, we can tend to go off the rail in two different ways. One is we pick up an apocalyptic vision that we just focus on the return of Christ. We don't think much about post-return. That is the new heavens and the new earth dwelling with God forever. And we don't think a lot about what do we do in life prior to the return. We kind of become unuseful. In fact, one author talks about a hyper-focus on the exact return of Jesus often over time leaves us less interested in that very same thing. Or we go off rail the other way with a presumption that we just think we have time. We don't really think about it. We don't consider the times in which we live, that we just presume we're going to have more of it. This is how old I am. I'm going to probably live to be 80 years old, and I don't think, I'll think about it later, and we presume. And we forget the warning in James, who says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, uh, or this We'll go to such and such a city and do business here and make a profit. He says, why, you don't even know what's going to come tomorrow. You're just a vapor, a mist here today and gone. We don't think that way. So how do we steward the time? Well, I would say this. I don't want us to be riddled with anxiety, but I do want us to have a measure of sobriety over the nature of the days in which we live. Respectful mindful. Now, I I get the challenge for those of you who are under 30. Time just seems forever to you. But you go on the other side of that a few years, and and you find that time is sneaky. It's sneaky because it, it just passes very quickly. And you think it's just the grains of sand in the hourglass, but before you know it, there's a whole pile of sand right there. Let me ask you this. If you knew that you had seven years left to live, if you knew that you had seven years left to live, what changes would you make in your life today? It's not really an artificial question because you don't know that you do have that. And it's long enough, if I just said, well, if you had a week or if you had a month to live, everybody would be scrambling to get their houses in order. But seven years, you still got to cut the grass, you still have to pay the bills, you still have to change the children, you still have to go to work, you still have to file your taxes. It's long enough that you've got to live in this. How would you live? What would change for you? Would the way you handle relationships change? Would you be quicker to forgive? Would you be quicker to resolve? Would you be more mindful of how you speak about other people or the way you handle money? Would money be less of a concern for you? Would you tend to be more generous as a people? Or perhaps the way you handle work and success and and trying to climb the corporate ladder, would that become less significant to you? Or beauty? Would we be so concerned about how we look? Would we be so concerned over how we are appearing to other people. I I ask you, just if you're married, if you have a friend, ask them, what will you do if you knew that you had seven years left? What should change in your life? The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We need help with this. We need help. Think about an old I think I may have shared with you years back about an Old Testament professor I had who was around 50 when he taught the Old Testament class, and he counted up the days of his life until he was 70, thinking 70 70 was a mark of life, a legitimate mark of living in this day and age. And let's say it was 7,300 days, and so he would just reflect on those days passing, 7,299, 
7,298, just reminding him of his own, the brevity of life. I think of it in seasons. I think of it, how many summers are left? How many times left do I have to rake the leaves? Makes raking the leaves actually a little more enjoyable. (laughs) How many Christmases do I have left? There's enough that it's not tomorrow, but there's not so many that it doesn't make me pause and think about life. And if you're not a Christian here, how do you think about life? How do you think about the ending of life? How do you think about the, the, the consummation of all things? It will bear fruit in your life for you to think about the times in which you live. So that's what he's saying here. The end of all things is at hand. Everything has been done by God that will bring about full restoration of all things for the glory of his name, except his return. How we will live in this interval of time is significantly important. And that's what Peter's going to get to. How then do we do it? He starts us out saying the end of all things is at hand. We're like, okay, great, now what? Well, let's do more than plant apple trees. Look at what he says the first thing in verse, um, at the end of verse 7. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We ought to be people of prayer at a minimum. I mean, you see how he links the end of all things with prayer. So prayer is a means by which we will sustain faithfulness in the end of all things. This idea of praying, enabling, enduring to last faithfully in these days. Now notice how he also links prayer with our personal lives. Uh, the personal, be self-controlled. Well, that is what it is, right? There's nothing fancy about that word. It's controlling your appetites rather than your appetites controlling you. Many things in life that are very good for us and very pleasant and they're gifts of God, but they become, they become lords over us because we need them so desperately. He says, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. In other words, if you live an uncontrolled life, if passions drive you, whatever physical passions may drive you, you're, you're going to tend not to want to pray a lot. You're going to be probably riddled with some measure of guilt. You're going to hesitate approaching God. It's going to affect your prayers. Or he says, be sober-minded. The word used to mean sobriety in terms of alcohol, but it came to mean that you're sober-minded. You can see things as they really are, not as you want them to be or as you think they should be, but you see them as they are. And and seeing clearly will engender prayer. So being self-controlled and sober-minded equips you for a life of prayer. Now, Peter is only giving us the wisdom that Jesus gave to him. If you remember in the garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus died, he took James and John and Peter, and he pulled them aside from the others, and he said, stay here and pray with me that you may not enter temptation. You remember that scene. And so Jesus goes off and prays, and he comes back and he finds them sleeping. He goes back, he wakes them up. Hey, listen, stay awake and pray that you may not fall in temptation. He says this in, in Luke 21, he says, Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. That word escape means to not run away, but to prevail over temptation. Now, Peter is giving us wisdom from a posture of failure. He fell asleep, and he didn't prevail. It's not ironic that we fall asleep when we try to pray. It's not ironic that we don't have this warning. I mean, the coming rule of Jesus Christ is to constrain our lives, not to withhold joy, 
but to equip us to pray. So when you look at your prayer life, what do you see? I know that most of you, I would probably guess that the vast majority of you would agree of the importance of prayer. But, but what about your life of prayer? What about your practice of prayer? Do you have extended times of prayer? And when you pray, what is the content of your prayer? What does it reveal about the desires of your heart? You know, when you think about what you pray, you really know what you want. I mean, that tends to what you pray for. Sometimes it reveals things that are not so perhaps godly. Came across a um, quote from John Ward. He was a member of the British Parliament in the, uh, in the early uh, 20th century. When he died, uh, his, among his papers was found a prayer that he had written down. And here's what he prayed for. O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise that I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee to likewise have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. <laughs> now, that reveals something about the heart, perhaps, that's not so pleasing. What, what, prayer, what prayer is for, as, as Josh led us in prayer, it's not just to petition God, it's not just to thank God. Prayer is actually a means by which we cultivate fellowship with Christ. It's in prayer that we set him apart in our heart. It's in prayer that we, we have communion, just like the intimacy that you may have in conversation with a dear friend or a spouse. This is what we're to have in prayer. You know, A.W. Tozer was a, a pastor and a writer in the mid-20th century. He says, we've done much and we've done well in thinking about what Christ has done for us. But we haven't done as much in thinking about who Christ is to us. Just the personal relationship that we have with him cultivated in prayer. One author said, you don't want to meet Christ as a stranger. You want to meet him as a friend. And, and there's the communication that we're to have with them that will strengthen us and encourage us. Spurgeon just gives one little word to this. He says, the nearest place to the gate of heaven is the throne of heavenly grace, that is prayer. Much alone and you will have much assurance. Little alone with Jesus, your religion will be shallow, polluted with many doubts and fears and not sparkling with the joy of the Lord. Since the soul-enriching path of prayer is open to the very weakest saint, since no high attainments are required, since you are not bidden to come because you're an advanced saint, but freely invited if you be a saint at all. See to it, dear reader, that you are often in the way of private devotion. So let me encourage you that in these days, when all things, the end of all things is at hand, be in prayer. Make a commitment. Even today, think about what is it going to look like? How am I going to begin to pray more effectively, more diligently, more extendedly? Okay, then secondly, look at the text. Look at verse 8, because he tells us to, to love one another. In other words, what are we to do when the things at hand, that all things, the end of all things is at hand? He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, you've heard this repeatedly in this letter. This is the fifth or sixth time he's said this. 
that we're to love one another earnestly. And it's interesting uh, that you know, this context of the community of saints that we're called to love because we're sinners. I think that's why Peter's writing this. That we offend others and we take offense from others when none is given. And so this, this idea of above all, he's not lifting it above prayer as if prayer is now secondary to love. He just knows how much we, a group of redeemed sinners, need to be loving one another. And this idea of earnestly, as I explained before, if you can imagine a horse in full-out gallop <clears throat> or a runner just sprinting with all of his strength, that's the idea of earnest, that when we love one another, we are loving earnestly with all of our strength. It's a true commitment. In other words, this kind of earnest love is not marked by feelings of exhilaration or kind of those infatuation feelings that we have. No, this, is, this love is different. It's a resolve. It's a resolve to love in spite of the sins against us. I think that's what the commitment is. I think that's what the context is. Because you see him say, he says, above all, love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying that, hey, if we, if we love more, God's going to forgive us. You know, the Christian faith never teaches that your increase in virtue is going to eliminate your vices. It doesn't teach that. And it's not condoning sin. It's not ignoring sin. He's simply saying that if you have been loved by God in Christ, that when you are confronted with sin of another toward you, you can love them. It's not about your sins, by the way. If you sin against another, he's not saying go love to cover it. No, you go repent if you've sinned against somebody. But if someone has sinned against you, he's saying, that you cover their sin by loving them. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what, what, what crazy advice. You, know, oh, you sin against me, I'm now going to love you I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. I'm going to extend myself to you. I'm going to speak kindly of you. I'm not going to return evil for evil. This is mind-bending. And, and, and the wisdom comes out of Proverbs. He's drawing it from Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. If you don't cover the offense, strife can erupt. Or 17:9 from Proverbs. Whoever covers, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Instead of talking about it, I'm going to love them instead. So when you're offended, then love. Don't speak about it. Now, where do you see this evidenced in your life? I mean, this is so in our laps right here. I mean, who here hasn't been annoyed by somebody in here? I mean, who hasn't had trust broken? Who hasn't had a harsh word spoken against them? We have all been guilty of giving offense, and we're all guilty of probably being on the receiving end. Not guilty, but we have been on the receiving end of offense. And, and in these days, where the end of all things is at hand, he said, you've got to be loving each other. And in a church, a mid-sized church like this, you don't have the capacity to go to a different side of the auditorium. You know, and I'm thankful for that, actually. I'm thankful because we have to be able to walk through this, particularly in times of persecution. We can't be pointing the guns at each other. No, it's like the enemy's out there. It's not in here. So, so let us practice loving others 
to cover their offenses against us. Okay, thirdly, look in verse 9. What do we do when the end of all things is at hand? He says, he says show hospitality. I, I love this one. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So in other words, hey, the end of all things is at hand, so invite someone into your home. Get to know them, fellowship with them. You're thinking, shouldn't I build a bomb shelter? Shouldn't I run for the hills? No, just invite somebody in. I love, I love the confidence that Peter has facing the, the shuddering of the earth. We're going to have people in. Now, let me explain the context here. This hospitality was a basic responsibility of the Old Testament Jew. Uh, remember, they had no hotels, they had no motels, they had no B&Bs. Uh, people would travel. And so they needed places to stay. To stay outside would be uh, exposing oneself to the element, but also the dangers of, of a sinful society. And so these, these, the Jewish nation was called to open up their homes, invite travelers in, make a home for them, emulate God, who is a great host, you host. Either that or they'd have to get a room. And generally the only room you could get in a town would be in a house of prostitution. And any godly person wouldn't want to stay there. And so he's saying, open their homes. In fact, so important is it is that Peter takes it, and in both of his lists of the qualifications for an elder, you have to be hospitable. So it's that important, this call for hospitality. And I, I love the honesty, because Peter says, without grumbling. Why? Well, because hospitality is often burdensome. It can be costly. It's difficult. It affects your way of life. It adjusts the way you live. Right? It's often not appreciated. It's often not reciprocated. You know, people say, well, they never invite me back, so I'm not going to invite anybody anymore. Nobody invites me back in. But he's saying, no, no, in the days where the end of all things is at hand, it, don't let that rock your world. Offer hospitality. Display God. So how should this look in your life? Well, let me just take a simple illustration. It could look this simple, that if you're a family, if you're single, invite somebody out for lunch or to your home for lunch to get to know them, to have conversation. You know, the food, there's a book called A Meal with Jesus. It was written back a few years ago, and it's speaking about ministry, discipleship, and fellowship, and even missional lifestyle around the table. And so they took all these examples in Scripture. Jesus with Zacchaeus, and Jesus with Mary and Martha, and Jesus at the Last Supper, and Jesus with, with Matthew. Th these meals in Scripture where much ministry takes place. And, and the book encourages us, do ministry around the table. In fact, we just had a, um, one of our intern meetings. Danny was mentioned in prayer, Danny and Lauren. Danny's an intern with us. He works 20 hours a week. He, he studies and he serves you by doing many tasks that are behind the scenes, preparing to go overseas. Miss Ayel is another intern we have here from Southeastern, and they're learning uh, ministry with the staff. And so last week we studied about the art of spiritual conversing. How do we have spiritual conversations? And we spoke about the idea that Paul in Acts chapter 20 says that he had a pulpit ministry, but he also had a house-to-house -house ministry. The ministry is great in homes, around tables. This is a key part of your feeding, but the, the conversing that you participate in around the table is essential for your spiritual growth. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, well, my house isn't nice enough, or my house isn't big enough, or my house isn't clean enough, or the couch is ratty looking, or the yard is too small. May I encourage you to move beyond that? We are a family. We are united in, with tighter bonds 
than we are with our biological families. I, I would encourage you to think upon this idea that Jesus in Luke chapter 12, when he was speaking about the nature of his, his return, here's what he said. <clears throat> he said, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, and be like men and women who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So it's about the return of Christ, obviously. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself. This is the master. This is Jesus Christ, the king of all things. He will dress himself for service and have you recline at the table and he will come and serve you. He will host us. He's going to be hospitable to us. Aren't we in these days when the end of all things is at hand, be hospitable to one another? Try it. Just think this way. Next Sunday, I'm just going to buy an extra pound of lunch meat, bag of potato chips. I'm just going to invite someone in. And I want to converse with them. I want to speak with them about where they're from. How long have they been here? How they come to know Christ? What's their greatest joy? What's their greatest fear? At Google, conversational starters. You'll have plenty of questions to get a conversation going. Okay, the fourth thing, and you see it in verse 10, and I'll wrap it up with this, is to be useful. So think about it. I explained verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, right? So what do we do? Well, we're going to be prayerful, we're going to be loving, we're going to be covering sins against us with love, and we're going to be hospitable, and we're going to be useful. Look at what Peter says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, what is this saying? Well, first it's saying be useful, that God has given you grace to serve one another. That's what he's saying. So the Christian, if you're a Christian here, you have been given a gift. You may not know what it is. That, that may be true. But I want you to at least not leave this room thinking that I don't think I have one. The fact that you can't identify it, the fact that you may never have used it, doesn't mean you don't have one. You do have one. The New Testament doesn't see a Christian apart from some degree of giftedness. And these gifts are to be used in serving one another. That's why he calls us a steward. A steward is like a manager. A manager, he's been given a task. He's been given something that's not his. It's not his by possession, but he has been given to it so he can use it. So we have stewards in our church, right? Tim and Kevin are our treasurers. They both share this responsibility. And what they do is the church gives them check writing capacity to write checks, to pay bills, to pay salaries, to keep the lights on. Now, can you imagine, they're given that money and they steward the money. Now, can you imagine if they took it and started driving in nice cars and wearing fancy jewelry and the lights don't come on and we start grumbling because we're not getting paid and you, you know, you would be aghast. That wouldn't be the, but it's not your money, you'd say. It's, it was given to you. What he's saying here, if you're feeling the pinch right now, is that he's given you grace. And the word for grace is the word gift. You have a gift. You're to steward it. You're to distribute it. You know, the Holy Spirit distributes it, but the Holy Spirit doesn't control the operation of it. You do, and I do. And so we're called to now steward or employ or distribute the gift that we have for the benefit of each other's faith. You see all the one another's. This is language for us about us. And we are called to steward these gifts of grace. Now he boils the gifts down into two groups, speaking and serving. Now you see other gift lists in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But here he just says, if anyone speaks, 
Speak with the words of God. Now, you may say, well, that applies to you, Tom, or, or other preachers and other teachers that we have in this church, and it does, but it goes well beyond that. I, I mean, you have the gift of speech. You have the capacity to encourage, exhort, instruct. Do you realize that you, of God's highest creation, have the capacity to communicate to the degree that you do? You're to steward that. That is not for simply you to get around in life. That gift has been given to you, that you would utilize it with God's words for the, benefit of, for the benefit of others. He's not worried about the context of whether it's preaching or teaching or whatever. It's the content of what you say that's significant. If you were to ask yourself, how have you stewarded the knowledge that you have of God? How have you shared it with others? How have you encouraged others? How have you instructed others with it? How many of your conversations have you had where God never seems to break into the discussion? Now, I'm not saying, please hear me clearly, there are many conversations that I get in and out of that aren't somehow immediately redemptive. You know, depending upon the depth of knowledge I have with the person, the relationship I have, it's going to cause me to be considerate of that. But I want to be thinking, I want you to be thinking that way. How are my conversations redemptive in their nature? But not just the gifts of speech, and also stewarding the gospel. We have this colossal news that we sang about over and over, and how much have I locked it in, in, in a safe, never to be drawn out for anybody else, but for me to feel good that if I die tomorrow, I'll go to heaven. So we need to steward the gospel as well. And then the serving, this serve with the strength that God provides. He's calling us, you have been graced. If you're a Christian here, you have a gift of grace to serve. It could be teaching, it could be working in the nursery, it could be teaching a Sunday school class, it could be uh, teaching the children, it could be ushering. Again, I think the text doesn't really elevate one gift over another. What the text indicates is that if you're going to serve, whatever you do, serve with his strength. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it means this, that when I go to serve, I'm going to serve mindful that I need his grace to do it in a way that will glorify him. I want to serve in a way that's mindful of the person that I'm serving, not how I'm being perceived. That I want to serve perhaps outside my comfort zone. That for me to do this, I need his strength because I really don't know what I'm doing. So when you look at your life, do you know the grace that God has given you in terms of a gift? If you don't know, have you asked anybody? The church is very helpful in this way. What do you see me being able to do? How, how do you see me being able to serve? You know, we often give these questionnaires out to determine a spiritual gift, and I find them a little lacking most of the time because they tend to, they tend to just ask three or four questions, and if you answer yes, you have the gift. So I took the first one, and I, was, I had the gift of exorcism, so that's good. <laughs> I have it. That's what the questionnaire says. You need the questionnaire with a council of believers who know you and who have seen you work and who have seen you deal with life. So it needs to be mitigated by by the relationships that you have. And if you're saying, you know, I, I don't know that I can do this. You can't. That's the point. It's speak with his words or serve with the strength that he provides. This is the beauty of it. You know, perhaps you're here and you're thinking, yeah, I'm just scared. I mean, I really, I, I'm, I'm in that category of people that I am just timid and scared and I don't know what I can do well. 
I, I, I hear that, and I can appreciate that. And, and I would only encourage you to, to, to mind deeply the promises that he gives you here, to encourage you, to ask others, what do you think I might be good at doing and serving? And, and, and for those who are just not doing any serving or speaking because you're just too distracted and you're too busy and you're in a season of life, be mindful of the, I've got a bad season of life. That is a legitimate response, but it can become a life. It can just be one season after another and you never get out of the season. And I would be mindful, I would encourage you to be mindful that the end of all things is at hand. And then for those of you who are serving and who have served and you're just weary, you're just weary. I, we were with a pastor this past week who just said, I, I'm just weary. You know, I, I can appreciate that. Um, I would say to, yeah, to rest, maybe to share that with a brother or sister, ask for prayer, go back to the word where it says, be steadfast and movable, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Remind yourself of those gospel promises that we have. But I just want to encourage us to move in this, to be useful. And, and I, just for a, a mark of anecdotal evidence, in my own life, Carol reminded me of this. You know, the first time I got up, uh, we got back, I got the Lord called me into the faith. Very thankful for that. I wanted to do anything, and I said that to him in prayer, got on my knees, said, God, whatever you want me to do. And I get a call and go to the prison. And so I go to the prison with this ministry, and they ask me to read a uh, Bible verse or a Bible passage in front of all these prisoners. And I remember reading it and I started getting nervous and I started sweating. And then I really started sweating. And I'm not talking a glistening. I'm talking about like full out showering. And then the heat came on. My head started heating up like this nuclear fission was beginning to take place. And my glasses started steaming up, and I, I realized I couldn't read anymore what I was supposed to read, so I had to do this, but then I couldn't read it because I need my glasses. So I'm reading it like that. And I remember sitting down, and I said to myself, I'm never going to stand up in front of anybody again. And I did that. And, and so just God changes people, and, and he equips people, and he enables people, and I want to encourage you with that. And here's why. You should be asking the question, why are we doing all this? Tom, you've told us about the end of all things being at hand. You've told us four ways to begin behaving. Why should we do it? Well, look with me at the end of verse 11. He says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That in everything God might be glorified. God's purpose in gifting you is so that you are participating with fellow saints in bringing glory to him. And notice in everything, there is no secular sacred divide for us. There is no dualism. Everything you do, he says, in everything you do, do it for the glory of God. And do you notice the optimism of Peter here? To him be glory and dominion forever. There is no fear that the end of all things is at hand. There is a call, a call to charge, a call to move forward, a call to say, no, I am going to move in prayer. I'm going to move in greater love toward those who sin against me. I'm going to move in a way of hospitality and encouraging people in their faith. I'm going to live, whether I speak or whether I serve. God, I'm going to do it for your glory and for your honor because you have a life ahead of you, a life that will be glorious. None of those outside of Christ have the life that you have 
have the promise that you have. You can throw yourself at this. Here's a story told of a Greek general, Antigas, and he had this soldier, and the soldier uh, was diseased, and he was dying. And, and he was a valiant soldier. He knew he was dying. And so every battle, he was at the front of the line. Why? He had nothing to lose. He knew he was going to die. And he was valiant, and he rallied the troops battle after battle. He was a great warrior. And this general, who didn't know much about him other than his work on the battlefield, took a shine to him. And then used his own money to seek physicians that he could to help this young man. And actually, the young man was beginning to be healed. And then as the story goes, he wasn't at the front of the line anymore. He, he began pulling back from the line because he realized, wow, I've got a life now. And he began to become protective over his life, begin to back up and not be so valiant and dedicated to the cause. Life was getting more comfortable for him. Folks, the end of all things is at hand. We are very comfortable. Let us not forget the urgency, with sobriety, the time that we live. We have a life that is to come that will cause this life to seem so weak and insignificant. Let us not be dulled by the pleasures of this world, but let us be motivated to serve him for his glory, that he alone would receive glory for our lives. So let's just take a minute now and ask for God to take the weight of this passage and imprint our souls. And I'll close this in just a minute.